I've made mistakes as a leader. There was a point where I thought I had everything like locked in. And what I was doing was more of a golden rule of leadership. I was leading people the way I wanted to be led. Give a hoot mm -hmm. as fiercely as you can. Be absolutely vulnerable. We are supposed to be providing security for the organization, our company, but we don't feel secure in our own role. Sometimes in cybersecurity, we get that, the department of no sort of moniker, like, oh, you can't download this, you can't do that. So I think we get a bad rap sometimes. From your perspective, like, where do you think that department of no construct comes from? So I think it comes from legacy. I think it comes from history. I think the CISOs of the days of yore really were about don't download this and don't do that. Mm -hmm. I think old school CISOing put itself in a place of being a business blocker in a lot, of, a lot of ways. I grew up on the product security side of the house long before I became a CISO. I was on the, on the engineering side of the house doing security over there. A good friend of mine, a mentor way back in the day said, the one thing you cannot be is in the product prevention business. Mm, right. <laughs> you know, like, like if you're there to put the brakes on the train, guess what? You know, if you want to stand on the tracks in front of the train and wave your arms and say, no, 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 <laughs> who do you think is going to win? You or the train, right. right? You're going to get smeared across the tracks. So I think it comes from this legacy mindset of trying to protect, putting protection forward and foremost as the only concern and ignoring the entire context of the business. I think having grown up on the product security side of the house, I, you know, I got a cheat code on that one. And I was a very business enabling CISO before that was cool, mm -hmm. you know, but I think it is cool now. And I think anybody who's not a business enabling CISO is getting themselves in a lot of trouble. I think, I think that office of no reputation is fading. When I first became a CISO about 11 years ago, uh, I didn't know what to do, what to do. I know I have to restrict access. I have to filter a lot of the things that we need to do. And, but being a first time CISO 11 years ago was very tough because I didn't know where to find that balance. And um, I have to listen to the business, which, you know, business wants to enable. And of course, IT auditors, our regulators are, hey, you can't allow this. So, it was very difficult. The good thing today is things are changing. 90% of our colleagues around here, at least in the Dallas area, it's not an office of yes, but it's like, yes, but we will verify, but we will have compensating control. Yes, we will have all these other conditions, but yeah. it's changing, it's changing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, but, not yeah. no, but yes, <laughs> right. but. Yeah, yes, which is but. a big step past no, it's a big yeah. step past no. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they feel the same. Yeah, so I mean, in IT, they always call it shadow IT when the business just decides, you know what, we're just going to go do it ourselves, right? That is the direct and obvious and immediate response to being told no. Yeah. I need to get this thing done. I need this tool or that thing. And IT says no. Right. What are you going to do? You're just going to go, oh, I got told no and walk away and that's it. No, you're going to try to solve the problem yourself some other way. Mm -hmm. This is where shadow IT comes from. My phrase is, it's, it's not shadow IT, it's business aligned IT. Yeah. In fact, they're better at business alignment than you are if you're the one saying no and causing them to create what they're creating in the first place. Mm -hmm. They're actually more business aligned than you. And cyber needs to think the same way. My third attempt to be a CISO again, I took a different approach. Uh, I said, you know, uh, I'm going to be... I'm going to support the business. I'm going to enable. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, 
it's really good because I'm enabling the business, supporting. I'm doing everything I can to to make the business run faster and smoother and safer and more secure. Unfortunately, there's a downside. Everyone calls you now yeah. for small things. <laughs> it's enjoyable when, as a CISO, when you can actually positively impact the organization in a very positive way. I, I would get almost like, uh, not in tears, but a smile in my face when you see messages on Teams. Hey, Cecil, this is really good. Before we took weeks or months and now you could turn it around in hours or minutes. So. Right. You know, this the whole idea of it not being the Department of No Security and also the idea of business enablement, I think is something a little new. Like when I first got started in security, I had one goal and really one job, and that was to hunt threats. Yeah. Nothing else. It wasn't about looking at logs on a server and making sure that they, you know, this server can stay in production along with security, the requirements for security. It was put security on this device, and if it's going to disrupt operations, as a practitioner, that's your job is to make you know, disruption, but for the sake of security. But I don't think that's the right way to look at it. And I think, you know, it took us implementing like CISOs and directors to really understand the business. Would you all say like, as being a CISO now, you're looking at the business more or are you still looking at security more so? That's a good question because uh, on, on a day-to-day -day basis, actually it's a good story, it's a real true story. Uh, my boss pinged me the other day, hey, uh, I think he noticed that I, I spend more time on tactical things. And, you know, as a CISO, you think you're going to be very strategic, like 900%. You can't because this is just my first year. I'm spending more time on the tactical things. Mm -hmm. But I think as I go on through my phases in my program, I'm getting to a point where I could be more strategic. I promised my boss in three months, I'll, I'll spend more time, you know, looking at more strategic things. But you can't forget those things because on a daily basis, there are so many things going on. It's so hard. On, on a daily basis, you are addressing what's in front of you. But I have to make time uh, every day that I have to look at the bigger picture because if I don't do it, you know, I'll be sucked into the day-to-day. Mm -hmm. -day. Yeah. I think every, every CISO's role is different, right? You've got, you've got CISOs at large financial services companies. You've got healthcare CISOs. You've got Fortune 100. You've got little startup CISOs. You know, every, every place in between. And I've worked a number of those jobs myself. Like, I've been at five employees and I've been at 50,000 employees. I think there's a tension between the tactical and the strategic. And I think there's a tension between the securing and the business, you know, to your original question. I would argue that the further along I get in my career, and especially now that I happen to be at a startup, right, I would argue I am 95% business and 5% security. Mm. A lot of it depends on where you are. But at the end of the day, it's a ratio you should be paying attention to. It's definitely, it's the right question to ask. What is the ratio and what should it be? And the answer, I think, depends on where you are. Yeah. But you should definitely calculate that and assess that, right? To your yeah. point, there's that tension between strategic yeah. and tactical and that tension between business and security. And you have to juggle all of that. And, and you have to get that feedback from your boss, from yeah. the business, from your team, and be constantly juggling all of that, right? It's a challenge. And I think part of that is the maturity of the security program in a company. Yes. You know, when you're still start trying to start, it's you tend to focus more on more tactical things. And more mature organization, I see a lot of our peers, you know, yeah. they've been there for five or seven years. The program is called autopilot, on autopilot yeah. already. <laughs> Actually, they get bored. They, after four or five years, they started looking for a job. But anyway. Do you all ever watch Formula One racing? Yeah. I'd never watched Formula One, ever. And uh, when I started at Netflix way back when, 
Uh, I started watching more Netflix shows, and uh, someone mentioned Drive to Survive. It's a really cool yeah. uh, special where it shows you the drama between the teams, the, the drama between drivers, the engineering of the, the cars themselves. But one of the interesting things that really like just kind of sent a point home in my mind for security is the relationship between the driver and the pit. Like more specifically, like the pit wall where they have all the gauges and the computers. Think of the business as the car, right? And maybe the CEO or the business leader is in the driver's seat. Us as security, what we're doing is we're providing that additional context to Hey, if you push that car any further without taking a pit stop, you bring undue risk to the vehicle, to the business, to innovation. But they give you that additional information, like, all right, I'm going to push it just a little bit further to get to that next position, or maybe even take the lead. So really, you are enabling the car to move faster. The same with business. We're giving that additional context, providing information, that yes, but. And I think that's the relationship that I think people are starting to move to. And this really brings into the question what is the value of security to the business? A real Formula One driver does not see the brakes as just a vehicle, as just a mechanism to slow the vehicle down. The brakes are also a way to throw yourself around a corner faster. Mm. The brakes are a way to control and add speed when it needs to be added at the right moments. And your original thing was about where the brakes, right? Well, sometimes the brakes can still be the brakes and actually produce a faster turn yep. than a slower turn, right? And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. And that's a metaphor, obviously, and we had to have to get into the concrete details about how that's done. <laughs> but I think that it's important to remember that, that the brakes aren't just there to slow the car down. Like, I always try to remind myself of that. When someone says you're putting on the brakes, it's like, well, which kind of brakes are they? Mm. There's a lot of things I used to believe that I don't do today because they don't support the business. and and. But using your, your analogy on, on that, we work every day tirelessly trying to make sure that we meet the needs of the business. But at the same time, I want to use the breakup. I can tell you, us also, um, the teams are overworked. Right. Yes. You know that. I feel bad sometimes when there's a, an incident or an issue, everyone's overworked. We, we work hard to enable the business. We're, we're going as fast as we can, but at the same time, sometimes we got to use those brakes because, you know, I think if we don't stop, we're going to just burn ourselves uh, out and we won't be able to support the business long. You know, right. one of my best people took a two and a half week vacation. We needed him, but I think we needed him to do that more. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I will support that any day to put some brakes, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. press the brakes for a while. I think that's part of the challenge with security is the burnout aspect. Doing the same thing over and over again, looking at alerts, yeah. playing chief security officer, you know, trying to lead the people to do the right thing. And one thing that I'm starting to like ask myself right now is how long has everybody been in security? But for you two, how long have y'all been CISOs? Three times now in the last 11 years, but there were gaps in between. Okay. What about you, Ellen? Five times in 10 plus years. So yeah, about the same. Right. So. It makes me ask myself the question. If you are in your first five years of security, can you look at security as a business enabler? Can you have that mindset to think differently and say, it's not about the technology or about the processes of my security program. Mm -hmm. It's about the business and the requirements, the people involved, the culture. Mm -hmm. can, you think, can you think like that early in your career? I think you can. Yeah. I think you can, especially if you're, giving good, if you're getting good guidance from up top. Because to Cecil's point, it was a very different cultural experience for CISOs back then than it is now. There has been a change and an evolution in the way the CISO craft 
is taking place. That is a fact. So you can't just say it was the time itself. It was the journey of maturity of the craft itself, not just our own personal journey. So to start now, you should be able to take advantage of and have the benefits of the CISO who's been through that horrible 10 years and learned we got to be business enablers. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it is, I feel like I've got that responsibility as a CISO with my team. And one of the most heart-wrenching moments you'll have is when you've got these really strong people coming up through your technical ranks, your strong engineers, and they find this thing and they hunt this thing down and they do the threat intel and they do the log analysis, they get it all tidied up and they bring it to you and go, we have a thing, you know? And you know for a fact that that thing is like, that's not going to fly upstairs. That's not going to be a priority. I already know this because yeah. I just got out of a business meeting and I know this business context that my guys don't know. And so I have to break the news to them. This security thing you found doesn't matter to the business at this point in time. That is a heartbreaking moment for a CISO. But if it's done right, you're educating them on a bigger picture, not telling them no. It's back to the whole don't be the brakes. Don't be the brakes with your own team either mm -hmm. in that regard. Don't be the slow them down brakes. Tell them this was a great find. This is important stuff. We are going to put this in our hopper, but right now there are some business priorities. And let me give you some context and tell you what's going on. Right. And I do this with my teams. I've got teams, even the developers that report to me in my CTO role, mm -hmm. developers love to be in their in their box, and most developer managers and leaders like to keep them in their box. Don't, don't distract them. Don't leave them in there. They want to get in their groove and get their eight hours and look up and have this cool thing of code they produced. And if you distract them with other stuff outside of that groove, right. it, it may slow down production, et cetera. I still believe in giving context to my folks. Yep. And I'll tell them, here's the reason we're working on this feature. Because we got this business driver over here and this partnership thing or this big customer that requested this thing or whatever. And sometimes there's derailment. Mm -hmm. Security teams, development teams, it's all the same thing. Sometimes there's derailment. Sometimes you thought you were deploying your firewalls and suddenly you got to switch gears and do this other thing. Right. Or you thought you were writing this code and suddenly you got to write that code. Mm -hmm. And it's always done from our perspective with a business context. Yeah. If we're not sharing that business context and that business awareness with our teams, then they're never gonna get to that point. Mm -hmm. It's up to us to do it. We learned the hard way over these 10 years. Let's take those learnings and pass them on. And if we're doing that, I think they can catch up and get there quickly, more quickly than we did. Yeah. Been in the industry 30 plus years in technology, 25 years in security. I've been a CISO five times. I grew up on the IT side of the house originally, switched gears to engineering built and developed a, a massive product security program uh, at a major uh, manufacturer, switched gears again and went back to IT as CISO, but brought product security with me. So my first CISO role, I actually owned all of it, product security and enterprise security all under one umbrella, which was quite a challenge to suddenly step into that role. And today I am CISO and CTO at Trustmap. This is my first CTO gig. And CISO always loves to talk about being the learning leader. And man, you want to talk about learning taking on your first CTO mantle as a veteran CISO. Now, granted, at a security company, so I'm at a great cybersecurity startup, and, you know, it's an easy transition in theory and practice. Oh, my God, am I learning. <laughs> um, but I'm having a blast. I'm having an absolute blast. I, I lead a lot of CISO roundtables, and one of the themes that keeps coming up is they ask, how do I solidify my place at the table? Whether you're talking about the C-suite table or you're talking about how do you uh, show your impact to the board, whatever it is, how do you show up and, and be impactful? And one of the things that I quite often say is you have to speak in their language, right? Because I believe, and I'm sure people will fight me on this, but security is a service-centric function. You're supporting other roles within the business. So Absolutely. you're supporting people. And when you're a service, when you, you have to have that good customer service. You have to meet them where they are, speak their language. If you come in and you're just, I'm going to speak my language and call it good, that's not going to help you solidify your place with the business. So from that perspective, 
How do you think people that haven't spoke the business language before can come into that meeting? I must admit here, the first time I was a CISO, I really sucked at the job because uh, I didn't have the right leadership and mentorship. I knew technical stuff. And there were a lot of things I was doing. I'm always looking at a technical lens. I was so wrong. The second time I became a CISO, I knew better. <laughs> and the third time, actually today, I, I feel confident that a lot of the things I do today, you know, um, I wanna make sure that I could be able to speak in that language. Mm -hmm. It was so hard. I can tell you, no one's gonna learn this overnight. Um, looking back at my career, there were a lot of people who helped me. Actually, CISOs, Mr. Dwayne style. So you probably know mm -hmm. Mr. He's one of the first CISOs in the, in the Dallas area. I, he had to tell me how to communicate to my leaders. I didn't know how to act because I was always focusing on the threats. I didn't look at the business risk. It took me a while. No, now, I still remember my first presentation on metrics. I was so focused on threats, you know, the, the time that we recover, you know, very technical, geeky stuff. Now I, I'm not doing that anymore. I have these metrics and how they impact the business, how many hours, how much dollars could be impacted if we don't fix it. So my friend here does a lot of this preaching to the choir, you know, to the community. Yeah. I think the, <laughs> the, the, the... I knew a lot the, of that too. The, right. the, you, know, you know, remember, we don't... People who listen to you, to, to your shows, I think we gather a lot of this... I didn't do that. There was no Hacker Valley or right. Cyber Ranch in 2011. <laughs> there was... Today, the good thing is we have, there's so much information out there to guide young leaders mm -hmm. to prepare them for uh, their, this, you know, the stage. It's pretty crazy when you think of like all the resources and trying to use that information as a young leader or an established leader, because there's just so much information. You might feel like you're getting paralysis through analysis and yeah. saying, all right, all right, I'm gonna listen to this podcast, I'm gonna read this mm -hmm. book. And I think when you go down that path without being very clear of the steps you're going to take, you're going to end up burnt out or unclear. Maybe your, your messages to your board member, your colleagues might not be clear if you're just focused on so much. You know, like looking at, especially for you, Chris, looking at helping from a strategic to a tactical level, how did you find ways to communicate? Yeah, so, I mean, luckily, I, I come from, like, a threat intelligence background. And what's really cool about coming from that background is that you have to be able to speak in everyone's language, right? If I'm going to bring threat intelligence to a vulnerability management team, I have to speak their language. If I'm going to give information during an incident response uh, situation, I got to be able to speak their language. So being able to speak all of those languages and then also be able to speak to leadership, being able to speak to threat hunters, I think that's what really gave me that experience to speak at many different levels. And I think that's what gave me a, a unique perspective to be able to take something that's really business focused. Uh, one of my, my big mentors, Matt Harless, he was really focused on the business side. Like he would be deep in the business. I'm like, are you sure you want to be a CISO? You sound like you need to be a, like a CFO or something like that. But he was really deep on understanding that. So I feel like just taking a bit from here, a bit from there, it gives you a wider perspective of where, where security actually sits. You can be a CISO, by the way. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. No, no, that, that level of tone and context at different levels is so important. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's something that you develop through the years, mm -hmm. you know, talking to different people. I always tell my, our friends and up-and-coming CISOs, the trick is really about storytelling. Mm -hmm. Storytelling is probably the most important weapon in your arsenal as a CISO. If you can 
tell a good story to the technical folks, a different version, not, you know, a different tone at, at the middle managers and to your leadership. I think that will help a lot. People listen, people gravitate when you have a story rather than just mm -hmm. giving them data. You what, need to ask what what is a security story? You got do you yeah. have an example? Because I hear that all the time. Like if you approach it with storytelling, people will receive it better. And this sounds very clear, yeah. but what is a good security story? You know, I think a lot of it is experience, things that you learn from other people. And uh, that's why I like listening. I like being here because this is a really good story. What about you? What do you what do you find to be a good story and security? How do you tell a good story? So one of my mandates, edicts, whatever that I tell my team, my leaders is, and it ties into what you said: business first, risk second, technology third. You should always speak in the terms in those in that order. Never lead with technology when you're talking to anybody outside of the security department. Mm -hmm. So for me, the business stories are follow that narrative, follow that order. So mm -hmm. once upon a time, there was a business that wanted to expand into Europe. And it turns out there were risks to that expansion. It turns out there were regulations that had to be met. Mm -hmm. And there were privacy laws that had to be overcome. And there were uh, concerns about intellectual property and, and protection in these various states, you know, where the state might have more control over the network or whatever, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And then came the technologies that helped solve these problems and da 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 da. And you are telling that story. And you are telling that story upstairs to Cecil's point. You're not changing your story. Right. But maybe the, the focus is on the desire to expand into Europe and what the benefits to the business are when you're talking upstairs. Maybe when you're talking to your peers, it's more about the risks because everybody already understands the benefits, right? right. And maybe when you're talking to your team, you, you have to mix all of it. Or or maybe you can just dive straight into the tech and they don't really care to know those details. It really, it's going to depend on the audience every time, but it's still the same story. Once upon a time, there was a business that wanted to. Mm -hmm. and, and you just follow those steps. Here's the business goals and drivers. Here's the risk to those goals and drivers. And here's the technology we're going to talk about now as the security team. And the most important for a good story is a happy ending. Yes. <laughs> because yes. if you don't tell them what's the goal, you right. know, right. If, if it's going to be an unending panel, no one's going to follow your leading. <laughs> I love it. There you go. What, what I love about telling the nice story is that with Hacker Valley and the things that we tend to talk about, we tend to stay on the positive side. A lot of folks go into the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt in order to sell things, in order to tell that story. But I'll give you an example. Uh, one of my favorite formulas for a story is, you know, you could do the whole hero's journey, right, and get really complicated if you want to. But honestly, telling a good story is normal, explosion, new normal. So one way that you could sell like multi-factor authentication for emails, like, you know, this is how we are today. We get breached and all this crazy stuff happens, all this bad stuff, and then, you know, this is what happens. But I think you could also tell that story in a good way. You could say, this is where we are today, but imagine if we had X, Y, and Z in place. This would enable us to do X, Y, and Z, right? There's different ways to kind of tell that story, but also that's the formula for a story, right? Providing that additional content. You know, there's two elements also that you can add on top of that, which is scenic detail and specific detail, like all of the things that you would hear or experience that time of day. Like if you're telling someone about multi-factor authentication, maybe talking about the risks, you can say, imagine that you're coming in on a Saturday mm -hmm. during our busiest season when all everything needs to be just perfect. And then you get into the specific details of like, what would really happen? And then going back to the scenic of how you would feel, where you would be feeling it at. Would you be feeling it at a home or would you be locked in a room with your team trying to assess that you know, situation or remediate that situation all the way to the conclusion? Like how can you walk away with that happy ending, but also feel it and have your stakeholders or even your counterparts feel it too? 
grab that emotional, yeah. that emotional piece of it. There's, you know, we always try to act like in the business world, like it's all about the facts and it's all about the figures and it's to leave emotion out of it. And the reality is, no, don't leave emotion out of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't let emotion dominate. Yeah. Make the rational decision. Make the best decision for the business, for the organization. But if you want to try to pretend that this room full of people sitting around this table hearing you pitch your story are not human beings with emotions, you are selling yourself short. You are, you are going to fail at your mission. Complexity is everywhere. Instead of avoiding challenges or fearing failure, I've learned that you have to focus on what you can control. In work and in life, when that noise and chaos try to creep in, I choose to stay true to myself and remember who I love. That's how I control complexity. Kind of elaborating on us being that service-centric function, a lot of times the beginning is really understanding the requirements in the business, right? Talking to the stakeholders, figuring out what it is they need to do their job. How are they looking to innovate? Where are they moving next? Almost like trying to anticipate the moves of the business across the, the board. Sometimes I think folks, they don't even get to that proactive level. They, they come in, they start operating. Maybe they're operating off of the requirements they had before. Maybe they're just like fighting the fires. Mm -hmm. So how, how, what do you think about getting proactive and talking to the stakeholders to understand what it is they need as a security leader? The typical day of a CISO is just probably the word is chaotic. Yeah. yeah. It's really chaotic, especially if you are, if you work in a healthcare or financial organization, it's really, really difficult to navigate because Correct me if I'm wrong. I think CISOs have superpowers. <laughs> because yeah, Yes, of course we do. Yeah, <laughs> because I can tell you, there's too many things going on, but at the same time, you got to follow this path. Mm -hmm. You know, you have all these promises you made to the board, to your CIO, to your CEO, that we're going to do this, this, but some, I can tell you, there's just an ending barrage of small things. Yep. And one of my coworkers always say, hey, uh, we're like the fire department. There's always... You know, we're taking calls every now. Yeah, but, okay. So that's why I, I always, you know, when I meet CISOs, even the new ones, I, 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 I have big respect to anyone. Mm -hmm. CISO of small company, CISO of a big company, because all of these guys are, I could tell you, a lot of them are overworked. And, but at the same time, they're not losing focus on their aspirational, you mm -hmm. know, their goals. Right. This year, I'm going to have MFA. This mm -hmm. year, I'm going to have asset management. But in spite of all these things, you know, we try to do our best to make sure that yeah. we are able to do all those small things and at the same time manage those big things. So how about you, Alan? That's... I, I, you tell that story and I think about Star Wars, the original Star Wars, the first one, which was what, episode four was the first episode. Or whatever, I, I rewatched all of them there. last weekend. So oh, <laughs> when the X-Wing drops into that channel, Mm -hmm. And he's going to fire the photon torpedo, and yeah. all around him is chaos and TIE fighters and the, and the big cannons and guns all going. And he says, stay on target, Red Leader. Like, mm -hmm. you have to trust as the CISO that all those things you put into place that you know aren't even baked fully and complete the way you wanted them, you just have to trust in them mm -hmm. that they're going to tackle all of that chaos around you as you stay on target to get your MFA, your asset management, yeah. whatever it is. There's this, this just this moment of just a prayer and using the force. You, you don't always have the team you want. You don't always have the tech you want. In fact, you probably never do, even though that's, and that's not to slight the people. You've got the people you want, but you still want to get this guy trained on this, and you've got a brand new technology that nobody knows, and you have, like, there's always flux and change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you never truly have the team and the tech, and yet you have to utterly rely on it at times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Stay on target, Red Leader. You know, <laughs> you know those CISO friends we have around here? 100% of them, I can tell you, they care. Mm -hmm. They care for the organization. They do what's best for the company. Sometimes, someone's going to call me CISO. It's like everything's happening at this point. But, you know, we, we, uh, we try to survive. We, we do our best. It almost reminds me of a paradox being in security, where we are supposed to be providing security for the organization, our company, our team, whoever it may be, but we don't feel secure in our own role. Like, there's a lot of analysts that I've worked with that don't feel secure in their jobs, CISOs that are afraid of what happens if they do get breached, even though they're doing their best. What I'm feeling when I'm working in security is how do I make it so I feel safe in my job, whether it be safe that I have the right budget and I could, you know, secure my organization, but also safe where I'm not going to lose my job if something happens. Psychological oh, safety is exactly. a thing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a real thing. Everyone's worried, you know. Mm -hmm. Especially at the line of work we do. You never know. Tonight, something's going to happen. Of course, knock on wood. But it is really a problem. Probably about 80 CISOs in the, in the Dallas market are mostly friends. I call them friends. I have their cell phones. They text mm -hmm. and call me and... Yep. I can tell you, a lot of them are, are worried about their job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we just, I think it's, by nature, our job is really difficult. But I know at least a dozen people, CISOs, that lost the job because something happened. Right. And I feel for them. Now, I saw something really good in that. Um, I'm always a half-full yep. uh, guy. And mm -hmm. I can tell you, I saw a change in the last three, four years. People who have been breached, CISOs who were part of a breach, actually found a way to get better jobs. I think the experience they, they had during that three or four week or maybe six week incident mm -hmm. gave them a lot of experience. And I can wow. tell you, some of them are in a lot better job than, when, than where they came from. So. Right. I, know, I still know that there's no job security, but I, but I know that organizations today are, they know that, you know, the job is not easy. And I know that a lot of CISOs will get second or even third chances. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to add a little more half full of that and then also veer off wildly from that. <laughs> so, so the half full that I'll add is to your point, I think the culture of get breached, get fired is fading. Yeah. Mm. If you go look at the last few major breaches and I'm you know you can go all the way back to whatever target you know Home Depot Equifax but look at the more recent stuff other than the ones that make the huge press in the in the papers you know go dig a little and find the ones that came up were announced somewhere but weren't like the big giant deal most of those CISOs are actually still there mm. so the get breach get fired culture is fading I think people have recognized yeah. a CISO who is battle hardened is probably better than one who wasn't and, and to your point about you put in all the hours, you put in all the hours and, oh my God, you're, you're still at risk and you could get fired or laid off or, you know, let go when there's a breach or whatever might happen. I have also never, knocking on wood over here too, I have never been let go because of a breach. It's never happened to me. I, I feel like part of the reason is, and, and not that I've even experienced the breach, but if I ever did, the hours that you put in are visible. The storytelling that you're doing, if it's on track, business, risk, technology, you stay at that, you put in those hours, you develop those relationships with the peers, and you, and you asked earlier about, you know, what amount of time are you supposed to spend on that? When I walk in the door as the new CISO, I will literally spend 90 days interviewing every stakeholder in the business, VP and above. There you go. Every single one of them. And I will spend 90 days starting to slowly formulate a plan based on all of their inputs. And I will then go back one more time and socialize. Here's where I kind of got to based on your input and her input and his input and, you know, their input. And 
I won't even make a move until I feel like I've won the business's trust because I listen to them and I work with them and I care about them and everything I'm presenting is in their context. You know, to your point earlier, mm -hmm. it's in their context, not mine. And if you do those things and you put in those hours and you tell the right stories, I think even if the breach hits, you're safe. Mm -hmm. I do. I think that's good. One thing that I think is crazy, you know, we're in Tinkers, right? Tinker Tribe, hashtag Tinker Tribe. And one thing that we did during COVID is we had our Friday calls. We still do them. You lead them now, which is a fantastic. What was interesting about those calls, especially when I was leading it, because I was definitely trying to hear all the problems that people were dealing with. Mm -hmm. And a lot of problems are problems that anyone in any business could have, whether you're, you're the CEO, you're a CFO, maybe you're having a leadership issue. Maybe it's budget, maybe it's uh, process, maybe, you know, different things, buy-in, all these different issues that everyone has. But then you look at cybersecurity, we're one of the only, if not the only place in the business where we have all those issues, but we also have external forces that are constantly trying to disrupt our work. What do you think about that? that that's a fair statement. There's some other things that make us unique. The CMO does not have to go to the CEO and explain the value of marketing. The terminology and the language of marketing is already understood. Everybody knows what lead gen and demand gen and you know conversion rates are and all these kinds of things. Everybody understands that there's already a measured and known world that the rest of the business world accepts. Same with the CFO, same with the CHRO, same with the chief revenue officer, chief technology officer even, you know, chief digital officer even. Like rarely are they having to sell what we have to sell, which is the problem itself before we can even begin selling the solution. So everything we do, we're selling twice. Here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem. Socialize that around the business. Weeks later, you finally got an agreement to the problem statement. And now you have to circle back. Here's the solution, here's the solution, here's the solution, here's the solution. Right. So, so we have two challenges the rest of them don't face in that regard. The outsider problem and the fact that we have to sell the problem in the first place problem. So we're talking about the value of security to the business. And one thing that I think we like to talk about as security leaders is metrics. Right, A lot of people, they try metrics, like they know they have to have metrics, but they don't know what metrics to use, right? And it's very dependent on your organization, dependent on your regulations, but where is your mind when it comes to having good metrics to measure the value of security? Well, it's a big, big question because it's, we've always traditionally reported technical metrics, you know, virus, phishing, you know, how many click on that phishing exercise. Right. And I think th those are really valuable uh, because you could see how your organizations are getting better in terms of maturity. But I think one of the things that we most CISOs fail to realize is that after many years of doing all these metrics, I realized one thing I was always doing, I think I was initially doing it wrong. I, I forgot, I forgot to, look at my audience. Mm. You gotta, you know, remember, uh, not all CIOs are, they would appreciate technical, technical, they like business level metrics. I used to report three metrics to my CIO, to my CFO, and to my CEO. Different times, once quarterly, once weekly, and CEO is like twice a year. I always ask them what, you know, try to understand what they're looking for. And I think it, I became better at presenting metrics once I started learning, you know, where they're coming from. You know, my CEO doesn't really care how many people click on a phishing, uh, you know, simulation. Mm -hmm. But he is so focused on identifying, hey, how much downtime that incident cost us? You know, right. how much business did we lose when we had that ransomware in that, you know, in that computer there? So I think crafting your messaging 
in your uh, with, uh, with the type of audience is really the uh, perfect way of communicating uh, metrics to your organizations. I would absolutely agree with that. It's the same thing you were talking about before about know your audience and, and have the different, you know, we even talked about it's not the different story. It's just a slightly different take on the story yeah. or a different narrative or a different attitude or angle or perspective, but it's the same story to everybody. And it's the same phenomenon. I do what I call double-click metrics. I'll go to the board with the simplest, shortest, and sweetest description of the problem, situation, statements, wins, victories, losses, whatever. And again, business terms first, risk terms second. You stop there. You don't go past that with the board. Yeah. With the CEO, you might want to introduce some technology. With your peers, you're probably introducing more tech. And then with your team, you definitely want it all to be there. And so I will literally gather all those metrics and all those things and roll them up and roll them up and roll them up and literally make it double clickable. Mm. Here's this three slide deck that if you happen to double click this one thing, will pull up this five slide deck, which if you double click this thing, will pull up this seven slide deck and it'll get more and more details. You go. I'm a big believer in what I call the three-legged stool. You should be talking when you're talking upstairs in terms of a you know, three-legged stool. It takes three to stand. You can't have two, three minimum to stand up and actually have something that you can sit on safely. The first one is program maturity. Where are we at with our maturity? The second one is business objective alignment. Mm -hmm. Where are we at in terms of back to the whole business enablement conversation we talked about that started this whole thing. What business objectives is my security program helping to achieve, assisting, enabling, or better yet, creating? Like, you know, mm -hmm. what am I enabling? Like, where, where are the big wins or at least the partial wins I can claim there? And then the third one is risk. But it has to be material business risk. It can't be... Yeah. Well, and then it turns out that like 70 people could click a fish, and then I found out that 4,000 viruses <laughs> got through, and then I blocked like 4,372, but then 200 more came in. And you can't do any of that. Yeah, risk yeah. is a business risk. There is a revenue stream that might be impacted. There is a loss of PHI that would cause massive brand damage. There mm -hmm. is a, you know, those are material risks. Those are the levels of risk that you should be talking about. But how do you understand and assess and measure those risks? Well, you drill in. And this is the double click. It's like, well, actually, when we talk about that PHI, we're actually talking about ransomware defenses and we're talking about breach defenses. And now we get into the various tech stack and our investments there that all protect against this one thing. And so you can provide that level of detail if it's asked for, but I stay at those three for upstairs and leave it at that. Yeah. Wow. Sounds like you have a program that's running on autopilot and you are like riding <laughs> off in the sunset every single day. I wish. <laughs> yeah. So uh, go ahead and expand on that then. Like if you have this insight, this three-legged stool that you can always stand on, why is it still difficult to stand up a security team or program if you were to leave your current position and go to another company? Why would it be so difficult if we have all these foundations and resources? It almost sit, still seems like a defeating task. It's pretty easy, relatively speaking, as the CISO to create that board level report to begin capturing maturity, to begin capturing a business objective alignment and to begin capturing material risk. That moment of double click that expands to that next level where technology begins to be introduced, that's where the hard part is. Mm -hmm. That's where you are now having to sell the tech to the business to get the funds to support the tech without actually talking about the tech or selling the tech. Like this is where the conundrum is. This is where the challenge is. So having that high level presentation, easy to do. Having that be the driver for a successful program where you get the funding you need, that's where the rubber meets the road, and that's a much bigger challenge. What about the culture? Like, looking at the people that are involved in building security programs, you know, how does that help or even hinder you as a CISO, as a leader? How do you use the culture of cybersecurity to your advantage? Organizations, uh, any size, different companies, different verticals, it's an area that is, uh, you cannot see in the beginning, you know, when you become a CISO of a company and people, you know, most CISOs would always look at process, technology, people. Those are really good, you know, um, mm -hmm. the right people at the right roles. 
when and then you get processes, vulnerability management, you know, risk assessments, those kind of things. Then you get technologies. Now, I, I like to think that I've solved the problem. I'm probably not, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I always I want to patent this, but I don't think they have. There's a patent on this. I always found a way to make you know any type of challenge. I, I think I can make it work when you start looking at people and culture. I think, mm -hmm. you know, you don't just look, you have to look beyond the resume. You have to look beyond the job description. You know, you've seen people, hey, just follow the NIST or ISO or, you know, all these security frameworks. Those are all good, but a lot of CISOs tend to forget the those intangible things. That the culture is plays a really key role in a successful security program. I think if you have the right approach, you can get the best out of your individual players. Uh, I think when, peop when people, when CISOs create this program, you all are going to do this. I think we have to do a better job at looking at the people side, the culture side. I think it's, it will play a key role in having a successful security program. Mm -hmm. CISO Pinet, of course, uh, CISO for a company called R1. Uh, we're a revenue cycle management. I've been around like, more than 20 years in technology, 20 years, 22 years now in security, but still learning every day. <laughs> I've been in a lot of organizations, third time as a CISO now. I work at companies like GameStop. I was a CISO at DFW Airport. I used to work at TXU Energy, CVS Health, Boeing, really good, you know, great companies. Yeah. And um, for the most part, they always hire me. I think they think I know security. They didn't realize I actually learned from them. Mm. Whenever I go to these companies, I actually learn from the team. I learn from the company. Um, I, that's probably something I still do today. I, at R1 today, I'm learning new things. I, I thought I knew everything. I always have a plan on day one. On day two, all these things change, all the plans, because every company is different, different people, different problems, different compliance regulations, different culture. And I tend to develop my own, you know, style of leadership, my program around the company's risks, compliance, culture, and all those things. Stripping away the program, the cybersecurity program, and being the CISO, when you look at cybersecurity as a whole, and you look at the culture, you look at the people, how do you describe it? The whole metaphor, people, process, technology, it's another another triad, another <laughs> three-legged like stool. Yeah. People, process, and technology, every program stands on those three. And you'll hear the cliches of people are our weakest link. No, no, they're not. They're your strongest ally, period, end of discussion. Right. You've either enabled them and enlisted them or you're letting them sit idle. But they are your strongest ally. That is what they're supposed to be. Process and technology, you know, process to your point, people get sucked into the frameworks. And of course, you got regulatory drivers that sometimes you have no choice but to get sucked into the frameworks. They're not a bad thing. Cecil said it. They're not a bad thing. They can just overly drive and break things very severely when they do. It's important to keep them in their place. And, you know, back to the three-legged stool that I present upstairs, if regulatory is involved, I'll always have a down in the corner of one slide, oh, and by the way, we achieved ISO, oh, and by the way, we achieved whatever. And I try to minimize that stuff. Like, I'll brag about it. I mean, the team deserves credit for it. Mm -hmm. But I never make it the focal point of my program, yeah. right? And so the culture has to be partially defined by the CISO. Yep. You are enlisting these allies, and you have to treat them like allies and come to them as, hey, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but you're my best ally. I am? Yeah, you are. Come on. <laughs> come on this journey with me, yeah. and I'll show you why you're the coolest thing since sliced bread. 
Part of it is you are a cultural driver when you're a CISO. And then part of it is the realities of what you're up against. And Dutch Swartz from Amazon was on my show a while back on the Cyber Ranch. And he said, I, I loved this. He said, the culture of a company is whatever the guy in the warehouse in Duluth thinks it is. Mm, that's a good point. Because I worked for a company one time, I won't name names, but I worked at a company where the culture was more consciously engineered than I'd ever seen in my life. And at first I was very impressed by this. Mm -hmm. They had slogans, they had posters, they had t-shirts, they had the little badges and all the values and almost brainwashing camps together. <laughs> and, like it was like, it was there, man. It was enforced like I've never seen culture enforced in my life. And ultimately that company sucked. Yeah. Mm. Because what that culture actually did was it taught people you're either part of the Kool-Aid drinkers or you're not, and if you're not, you're at risk for your job. And everybody was looking over their shoulder and everybody was afraid. So the culture they actually built was a culture of fear. Ooh. Yeah. And that's that reality of the guy in the warehouse in Duluth telling you what the culture really is. Mm -hmm. You know, go have a beer with him after work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody's <laughs> afraid for their job around here. Right. Yeah. It's really the leaders that says yeah. the, the tone, drive the culture and people work. It's a difficult job. But when you're working for a great company, a great leader, it's, it's almost like it, it's not a hard job. It's a fun job. It mm. becomes really more exciting when you work for great companies and leaders. Mm -hmm. I mean, culture starts at the top. Yeah. It starts with the leader. And speaking of culture, we did a poll on LinkedIn to see what everyone else thought about it. Of course, there was a mix of people that were voting, whether you're talking about somebody that is a stakeholder of security or even practitioners. The question was, you know, what is the role of security from your perspective? Just in generalities, just what have you felt? What have you seen past, uh, present, future, whatever it is? And we leave it open like that. 15% still said that the security program was the Department of No, which is unfortunate, yeah. but lower than I thought. It's actually lower than I thought. We're making progress. 35% said that security was the enabler of speed and innovation which it tells me that we're getting a lot better. Yeah. yeah. But how do we make it even more? Right. And what was the last option, right? You got a, you said 15, 35, so that brings right. us to 50. Right. What's the other 50%? One was just it maintains operations, right? We just keep things chugging along. Mm -hmm. And then the other one was we slow the business down for the sake of security. Right. Which you mm -hmm. can read into those different things, however you read into it from your experience. Yeah. But how do you think we can get more people on the side of the innovation that, it's a great question because my experience has been the department of no or this function that can help the business, but it's not necessarily enabling the business or optimizing the business. And I think it's because of the team culture that I've worked on in the past. I've worked at vendors that are very laser focused on a technology domain. And that's great because I get to focus on that piece of technology. But what, am, what about when I'm the defender for an organization trying to keep all this data and information and people safe? I think that's where communication is so important for teams, like mm -hmm. to, to have a place where you can safely communicate, where you can communicate quickly and efficiently, but also where you can take action on those pieces of communication, whether it be tracking requests or ask or items somewhere, and just being able to reflect that and show that like, hey, this is the value of our team. Yeah. Even if we haven't been able to stop everything and implement everything, you can see that we're moving and working towards a common goal you know, securing this team. If you didn't know how what you were doing fit the highest level business objectives all the way up to the CEO level, your boss failed you. Mm -hmm. 
there's no such thing as bad teams, only only bad leaders. And it, it's very difficult to hear that as a leader because it's scary. It's like, it this could be my fault for not fostering the right culture, giving people the right opportunity. I'll say that the second thing that I think we could do better is enabling a great culture on our team. We, we'd like to speak about like coming to work with your most authentic self, but what about when people don't like that version yeah. of Ron? You know, Ron likes right. to sing at his desk, yeah. and I don't want to listen to Ron sing. You know, there's right. caveats and ways that <laughs> yeah. you got to think, but there's also ways that you can build a culture to where you're bringing in the people that have like minds, yep. but they're also bringing in diversity of thought, diversity right. of background mm -hmm. and opinion. Yeah. But I think, you know, marrying those two together is actually pretty, pretty hard. I think we should listen, you know, there are a lot of ideas around the room. One of a few days ago, I, I asked one of my peers. You know, we were brainstorming, and I, I said, "Let them, let them brainstorm." When you let people solve a problem, mm -hmm. and you adapt that problem, you bring it to your leadership, you bring it to a project, they'll feel empowered. They, yeah. they mm -hmm. feel better. They are, you know, they want to contribute more. Right. Yeah. So I think I think the secret to solving that tension you describe, I have I have two things I do. Give a hoot mm -hmm. as fiercely as you can. Be absolutely vulnerable and show people up front you are as absolutely trusting and invested in them as you can be. Mm -hmm. Before you even begin. Yeah. Start from those positions. Mm -hmm. When you're vulnerable, you'll screw up and you'll be public about it and you'll own it. And how you deal with that screw up and how you own it sets the tone for the entire team that reports you right there. Boom. Yep. The give a hoot fiercely, they have no choice but to start doing that too because they, it's infectious. When people care yeah. that hard, it's infectious. Yeah. And then trusting them and empowering them. I've had teams where I've had that slacker person that took advantage of it. I've had it happen. Eventually I had to escort them out, but it's rare. Mm -hmm. What you find if you just truly, truly, truly say, I trust you, you're a grown up. You got this. Go. Bring me in if you need anything. Obstacles removed. Questions, thoughts, bounce, you know, a sounding board, whatever it might be. Just go and do it. I got full faith and confidence in you. Mm -hmm. Even with a brand new team you've never managed before. Right. Start from there. Yep. Do those three things and do those three things fiercely. I've made mistakes as a leader. There was a point where I thought I had everything like locked in. I was like, you know, I'm such a student of leadership. I really, I found my stride. I know my style. I know what to do. And what I was doing was more of a golden rule of leadership. I was leading people the way I wanted to be led. So I was giving them space, letting them figure things out. Like just get context for me and go do your best work. But there's a platinum rule. The platinum rule is more effective from my perspective and especially in this situation. The platinum rule is lead people how they want to be led. And so that means understanding who they are, right? We're talking about communication with our people. And those one-on-ones, sure, we can use it as a status update, but I think that's a, a misstep. When you have that one-on-one, -on -one, you want to understand how is our communication? Is there ways that I can communicate better as a leader? Am I giving you enough context? Do you want it to be a more collaborative relationship? What is it about us that we can go to the next level? But then also supporting them in their role, giving them feedback, seeing where they want to go in their career maybe even preparing them for that next job, even if it's not with the company. But I do think it's that communication that really will take them to the next level. There's always no single way of managing. You, you, got, you have to customize it to every type of leaders under your team. So. All right, so Alan, I heard that you have psychic powers. I heard you have psychic powers too. Everybody here has psychic powers. We have this magic eight ball. So let's look into the future, right? We have security, department of no. It transitions to something that helps the business. 
we would like it to be in a perfect world, security always enabling and optimizing the business. Maybe we're there today, maybe we're not. But looking at the future, what can we do today? Let's start with you, Cecil. I've always postulated many times that things will always be better in the future. The problem is uh, the threat is so dynamic. We always know things will be better. I know we have good plans. We have how many roadmaps have you developed? Right. <laughs> it's I still I still have copies of my roadmap from ten years ago. Nostalgia, you're like, oh, and I was all you know. The first year I'm mostly right. Second and third year I'm mostly wrong. But you know, I think I think CISO leaders, especially the CISOs, are are we're starting to be business-minded folks now. Mm-hmm. We're getting, I think, we're to the point. I think this is almost like a a, a turning point for some of our leaders. We're starting to think like our business leaders. And I think that's the right path. I think we should let our technical leaders do the technical work and our job should focus on more strategic stuff and more things that will help us get a seat on the board. You know, not just presenting to the board, but part of the board. I, I, I'm very excited about the future. I, I know I'm going to be wrong again. <laughs> but I, I, I know that many of the CISOs I know are moving into that path. All right, hang on. I see a vision. Yeah. I see a vision. I see two great divides getting crossed. I see them getting bridged. The first great divide is the divide between the tech stack and the GRC. Right now, GRC in most shops is marginalized. They're regarded as box checkers. They generate policy that everybody ignores and acts like isn't there. And all they're doing is satisfying regulatory requirements or desired goal, you know, we're going to grab ISO or whatever might be there. Maybe it's contractual commitments, whatever. Mm -hmm. While the tech stack team tends to disregard them and not even really understand what they're up to and just regard them as like paper pushers over there. That divide is closing. That divide is closing for a number of reasons. There's a number of companies making some really smart plays right now fusing those two worlds together. And I think you're going to see more automation and more technology. I think you're going to see things like Chasm bridging in with cybersecurity performance management. You're going to start to see that gap closing. So that's that's divide number one that's going to get bridged. Divide number two that's going to get bridged is the divide between the board and the CISO. And this ties into what Cecil was saying. I think more CISOs are becoming board friendly and business language friendly. But I also think more boards are starting to become cybersecurity aware and cybersecurity friendly. And I think what's going to ultimately close that one, and I don't know when it's going to come, but generally accepted accounting principles, gap, accounting, something like that is going to come to exist for cyber. And it may not be a good thing. We may not like it. We may be resistant to it. But I think ultimately it will come, whether we want it to or not. And I think ultimately it's going to clean up board and CISO relationships. I think we're going to see more cybersecurity awareness come out of boards. And to Cecil's point, more business awareness come out of CISOs. Future, I think it's kind of what we're all saying. There's an evolution that's kind of happening right now. I'm a huge fan of mixed martial arts, MMA. Like, I, I love it. You go back to the really early mixed martial arts days, people had one style. Like, they did jujitsu or they were a boxer or they did kickboxing, right? And then they, they found out that, oh, you know, we need to combine some of these things together. And so I, I do a little bit of this and I do a little bit of that and I combine them together. Now you have people that are entering into the sport where it's all like cohesive. Like you have everything mixed together, so it's a cohesive game plan. I think we're doing the same thing in cybersecurity, talking about the same thing that you're talking about. Every move, every move from one company to another, now you're giving additional exposure to those leaders like, ooh, that was a good CISO. They understood the business. So when we look for another CISO, we're going to do that again. Then that person that moved is going to educate 
the folks at the new company, like, hey, this is how security should be run. And I think that's going to just continue to happen over time and evolve the space. When I'm looking at my magical crystal ball, looking into the future, what I see is security becoming easier. Mm. I think security is actually pretty difficult to do end-to-end today. Like hiring the right team, getting the team to work together, getting the technology to work with the team, getting your stakeholders to work with everybody. It's almost like this balancing act. And when you look at all of the steps that it takes to configure the technology outside of building the team, it's challenging, it's difficult. And most breaches, more than 50% of breaches happen due to human error or due to misconfiguration. So if we looked at how to make security easier, how to bake security into technology a lot better, then we're going to see, as a, as a byproduct, less breaches, less, yeah. less incidents, less alerts, and also less burnout for team members when they're trying to make security easier for their organization, making it easier to operate with. We spoke about a lot today. We spoke about security at its best, maybe security at its worst. And we can do a lot. And I think there was a principle I heard from everybody. Mine was easy, making security easy. Cecil, you spoke about having great communication. Alan, you had humility, allowing your team to do what they're great at and accepting that that's not your job. You hired someone else to do it. And you said evolution, seeing all of this evolve together. I think when you add these components, these principles together, that's the future right there. That is how we evolve, have better communication, make it easier, and also stay humble so our team can excel and innovate freely. That's the future of security. Cheers. Right on. Right on.